This is Matthew Crawford from Rounding the Earth, and uh, we're going to have an awesome conversation today. This is one of my favorite topics in the world because uh, I think we're getting closer to technology doing something that it hasn't done in a long time. I think that for, um, you know, especially the last few decades, but perhaps centuries, that technology has, instead of improving uh the quality of life for humanity broadly has often been uh, asymmetrically steered and invested in and controlled uh, in, in ways that have made the human experience uh, less uh, enjoyable, less productive, and uh, th than it could be. Uh, I'm just going to put it that way. And uh, today's guest, um, Kevin McKernan, is one of those people well, he, he has an idea he's going to present. We've talked about it once on Rounding the, Rounding the Earth before, using blockchain technology to save scientific publication, to pull it out of this controlled, uh, gated, uh, intellectual property-driven era that we live in, and, and making it something that is uh, more viewable, more community-oriented, um, more trackable, for everyone, um, but but there's a lot more to it than that. And I'll go ahead and say this: uh, I, I'm I'm going to be a little bit less involved in the conversation than, than usual because uh, I battled a migraine for uh, much of the weekend and, and spent some of the weekend resting afterwards. So uh, I, I'm going to try to have my brain going here. But uh, fortunately, Kevin is one of those people who can explain complicated ideas in simple ways very often without even leaving much behind which is great but um well that that's uh i'll let kevin introduce himself also here uh I, I'll, I'll let you add uh who are you kevin for those who haven't watched uh all of our our rounding the earth conversations oh uh, who am i so um i've done a lot of work in uh, in the genomics field which got me very uh, intellectually interested in personalized medicine uh and naturally that leads you in the direction of decentralizing medicine and how can we um, get ourselves out of this sort of pharma capture cult that we're currently in. Um, so after building DNA sequencers, I got involved in, in looking at the genomics of the cannabis plant because there's a library of compounds in there that seem to be over the counter and, and fairly safe to use. Uh, we're sequencing a lot of genomes of Psilocybe cubensis right now, which is the magic mushroom because there's a lot of tryptamines in there that offer a lot of therapeutic uh, potential without this kind of um, patent uh, system that we currently have that drives everything through an FDA drive in an FDA controlled narrative. Uh, so um, that's kind of my background is I like getting involved in um, decentralizing medicine. And I think what we want to touch on today is in order to make that dream really come true, we have to decentralize peer review because it is currently captive, just as captive as mainstream media has apparently become throughout the, the COVID pandemic. It's even more captive uh, when you look at the peer review system. So how, how does peer review change when it's put on the blockchain? So a blockchain on this, in this case, is just a hashing and stashing tool. So people, I'm sure in the, in the Bitcoin community are familiar with open timestamps, the stuff that Peter Todd did. Um, and uh, that, that's effectively 
it's an immutable ledger, so you can kind of notarize when things exist. And that's 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 one key. That's one part that's important in peer review is knowing like when did you submit this, when did this publish, and did you did you delete any of the records? Right. This was actually really important during uh, the the coronavirus pandemic because some of the sequencing records disappeared in some databases. Um, we also saw some data get completely fabricated in whole cloth in the Surgisphere study. Um, so data veracity is actually a really important thing in peer review. If you look through some of the papers that study this problem, there's something like a 17% decay rate of data out of peer review journals, meaning every year about 17% of the papers have links that expire or disappear. Um, now, it's usually not something that published in the last year, but maybe 20 years ago, a paper published and put something on a server that no longer exists, and it disappears. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a decay rate um, by putting these things in, in certain servers. Now, uh, you have to ask, why are these things going offline? And, and some of it comes back to, to fiat monetary policy and fiat funding behind a lot of the databases that the peer review system relies on. Right now, many times you have to put your data in a government database. And governments oftentimes have budget crises that tend to shut these databases down when they want to shake more shekels out of the community. You'll notice whenever there's a government crisis, they don't stop the bombs. They, they shut down the national parks and all the stuff that people care about so that they get you to agree to giving them more money. Uh, well, having the National Library of Medicine all in the hands of government means that when there's a government crisis, they're not going to stop giving money to Ukraine. They're going to turn off NCBI because the publications need to happen. Uh, and uh, there's so, so fiat funding behind the infrastructure is one problem that blockchains can solve because they decentralize uh, many of this. They decentralize the hosting of this, they put a monetary incentive for a reliable ledger to continue in perpetuity. We don't have that monetary incentive ensuring that the other databases are going to exist in, perp in perpetuity. I, I love this because uh, e economics, per, you know, it, it permeates everything. It's part of everything that is human. Uh, if you have values, you're participating in economics. Right. And uh, right. sometimes people think of economics as a dirty word, you know, the um, uh, the dismal it is a dirty word in academia, actually. In fact, you'll, right. you'll find a lot of the academics want everything to be nonprofit and uh, to not have any corporate interests involved. And what they don't recognize is that in invariably creates a Trojan horse agenda where Bill Gates comes in and gives them all the money and suddenly he's pulling all the strings. Uh, so sometimes these nonprofits are actually attack vectors. Uh, look at S look at FTX. That was all done under the banner of effective altruism, right? Uh, so it, you can create a lot of Ponzi's and frauds by taking this nonprofit approach too far. Yeah, and and a lot of people um, probably have a little bit of a hard time thinking of, okay, so what does this have to do specifically with blockchain? So you know what what a blockchain was was intended for well not, not really created for but sort of created for uh bitcoin is where you've got a public ledger for cash flows and so you know so long as as you're faithfully adding to this ledger and it is distributed it's out on everybody's computer everybody can read every single entry ever in the ledger and know uh, the address not necessarily the person but but the string of of, of bits that tells you where every single bitcoin has gone well, there, 
if we take a similar approach to time stamping of ideas, even time stamping to running a program, right? Part of the reason reason why surgisphere could occur is because we've kind of let it grow out of control that the current publication environment does not include uh, running of programs very well. If you've got an algorithm and, it, and it's feeding an output uh, for a bunch of data, um, when, when you publish in a journal, uh, you could just you could fabricate that completely, and obviously, you know, no nobody's even uh, come back to push back much against the uh, the idea that that was all fabricated. But um, you know, timestamps for everything means people can't unwind and go backward and say, nope, that didn't happen. If they want to hide something, and all the conversation leading up to and you know through and after publication gets kept. Yeah, there's. Um... There's another issue that's going on in, in, that I think is causing some of this problem is, is that right now peer review is very much a one size fits all problem and there's no pricing signal in it. So they have this concept that three reviewers will review every paper, regardless of whether it's a physics paper, a math paper, a biology paper, or a social sciences paper. Uh, it will always cost $3,000 to $5,000 and we'll give you an answer somewhere between six months and a year, right? Uh, that's a general overview of how, of how, how the system works. Now, for a lot of problems, like uh, you'll see a lot of the physics and mathematics community, they just put things up on like a, an archive. And because it's something that is like Bitcoin in many ways, the proof might be very hard for you uh, to solve, but it's very easy to verify. Uh, so there may take a tremendous amount of work for you to, to, to prove something and write up your proof. But someone like a Sudoku puzzle can just add up the, the, the rows and columns and say, well, this totally checks out. I don't need to run this through a six-month peer review and spend $5,000 getting it into a journal, hand over my copyright to some parasite, and have them charge me every time I want to download it. I can just reproduce it because uh, it's easily verifiable work. There's a lot of work in biology that's like that as well. We've have, we have a couple papers that we just throw up on preprints because it takes somebody $100 to verify it. And there's no point in us putting that through peer review because it's going to cost us $5,000 in a, a year of hell trying to get some anonymous idiot to come and comment on it. Um, now, that's, that's one of the problems of peer review right now is that the people doing the validation are anonymous. You don't know who they are. They're not necessarily vested in the outcome. Um, so when you get involved in more complicated peer review where the problems are difficult to solve and the validation is even harder to solve, the peer review system also fails, uh, mainly because it's, those papers tend to have like 50 authors on them and three reviewers. And it's impossible for three reviewers to like fully catch all the gaps. I think I just lost my lighting here. <laughs> uh, um, I'll get that going in a second. There we go. Um, so uh, what I think needs to happen is we need to look at this from like a Hayekian perspective or a von Mises perspective is we need pricing signals in peer review so that it will speciate. So there can be bronze level review. You have something that's very simple, quick, and fast. Maybe that goes to two reviewers, and then it's on Twitter, and Twitter hashes out the differences later. You have something you want to fully get replicated because you're a company who really cares. This is your product line. Maybe you'll fork over 20 grand so that someone can actually do some replication on this uh, and publish their replicated results side by side with yours, right? Uh, instead, what we have is some compromise uh, that doesn't solve any of the problems. Uh, and uh, because the reviewers are anonymous, they don't, they're not really vested in doing a, a good job. Now, there's some journals that are experimenting putting people's names on this and totally support that. But most of, most of it is, there is, is it's in this cloth of the, of the cult of peer review that, oh, you can't have the reviewers' names be 
known. Otherwise, there might be part of the, the patriarchy will come down on them and attack the younger people who are viewing the, the elder people's papers. And, and that, that's what it's all anchored in. When you talk to the, 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 the journals about this, like why can't we have people's names on these? Like they're afraid there's going to be too much um, doxing and attacking of author to reviewer if you do that. Uh, that a young a young scientist is going to be too afraid to put their name reviewing some senior author in the community, and therefore it it, it invokes all types of power structures and patriarchy bullshit. Um, and so they and, and the real the real truth is, the journals don't want to open source this because that is all they have left. Uh, you know, they, they they used to rely on printing stuff, and they had a printing press, and that was a differentiator. Now printing this stuff is cheap and easy and ubiquitous. What does a journal actually bring to the table? They bring advertisers, which influence them to shut down certain manuscripts the way they shouldn't. We got to get rid of that. And then they have the network of people that can do the review. And if they open source who those people are, they no longer have the network. Uh, so they don't want to open up the books on this. Uh, and, and that's what we have to change. So you, you've got you've got my mind spinning because one of the things that I I try to think through is what sort of a business model might develop. Right. Um, yes. You call it business model or, or you know, payment, payment model. Yeah. And can, can this become self-sustaining as in, is it possible that the public money um, that very often corrupt science, um, it might even become unnecessary? Uh, and and I'll, I'll give two examples of where it might. It might be that there are enough people who are interested in an experiment being done that, you know, some people might chip in a thousand dollars. Some people might chip in fifty dollars. You might have crowdfunding of science, and then you have a process. And this is something that you partook in. This your this is sort of a proof of concept where money was offered up. It was what five thousand dollars total. It was a thousand dollars per reviewer, which is typically okay. when you submit a paper, you, you usually send about three grand to five grand to the journal. Now, there's a couple other lower tier journals that are like 750 to $1,500. But you, when you get into the high impact factor journals, you're, you're looking at three grand to five grand to, to get your paper published. And that money goes to the journal and, and doesn't none of it goes to the reviewers. And that's where I think everything's broken because the people actually add value to this equation aren't the journals. You can totally disintermediate intermediate those people. They're clowns. So we, we have a, a bad business model in terms of where the incentives go, and we have an asymmetric conversation going on between scientists and those reviewing. And I think scientists would be a lot happier if the reviewers were sort of acting on a mentor basis. So I'm going to I'm going to offer out just an idea just to throw it out there of a business model that could work. Um, I because I, I kept wondering, like, how is it like, can you do something like Web 3.0, you know, sort of. You know, every view of this paper, there's sort of you know, micropayments that come in. Everybody who cites it perhaps passes through something. So let, let's say let's say I'm an independent scientist. Let's say that I want to study X and I go, you know what? Um, there will be sort of royalties for this publication. You know, the pays per view. Suppose I decide, OK, I'm going to take 30 percent. And, and, and maybe this is just part of like the upfront, maybe, maybe what you have is, um, you know, some sort of a program that just automatically divvies it all out. Maybe I'm the scientist, I take 30%, each of my reviewers, I offer 10%. And, and, and they're my mentors in some sense, right? And I, I may know who they are, I may not, they may know who I am, they may not, right? But you, you can sort of vet reviewers because an address that they use 
may be uh, associated with other reviews that they've performed before. So right. there is, right. That's there a, good is point. A, a little bit of a level of identification there, at least identification of action, you know, work performed, you know, sort of a proof of work thing. And then maybe 40% I offer up to, uh, in a, to um, the salespeople. And this is what I mean by that. Uh, part of what's been difficult with online payment schemes has been that the curators, there's been sort of a conflict between creators and curators. Um, but I think I think it's perfectly reasonable just to think of the curators as salespeople, right? If, uh, right. if Joe Rogan, <laughs> um, popular as he is, um, is somebody who then talks about a particular paper and people can link to it on a website that he puts up or something like that or a blog, um, then perhaps he gets a portion of the payments. And you could decide what kind of an incentive structure that you want. Uh, if you don't need, if you don't need much, you, that may be a lower number. But if what you want is to incentivize people to talk about right, right. About, about the research, so I, I think that there that there really is um, there are business models that are there that could be incorporated into all of this, and people haven't thought much about it because, as you say, there is a bias away from thinking economically in academia, and people go, oh, well, if we didn't do it the way we're doing it, with all this centralized government cash flow, then it wouldn't be done. Whereas what that does is it puts all of the all of the, the weight in the hands of one organization, or, or perhaps just a few. Uh, who, has no, who has no price signals once you do that? And you lose all the price signals. So, exactly. um, so that that's actually a very interesting model you brought up. I hadn't thought through that. Um, what where we started simply in 2018 when we ran this project is we just said let's just take the money we'd give to journals and give it to the reviewers. Simple, uh, you know, we we didn't think about sales or other aspects, which I agree are very important. But we just wanted to see like how quickly could we get this done if we put $500 up front for someone to agree to put their name on the review and 500 if they finish the review and put it public. Uh, we did that with three reviewers uh, and we got two reviews back that I think were really um, high caliber, higher than I've gotten from other um, anonymous reviews, because I think what happens when people put their name on it, they, 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 they're more careful because they know that it's going to come back to them. When they're anonymous, you can just throw crap over the wall and it, you know, it never comes back to you. So you do, you do a sloppier job in review. Now, the same thing I, I've noticed is true. There is a, there's a journal right now I use quite a bit called F1000, and, and they do have public reviews, but it's, it's a, you, know, you, you pay them and the journal keeps all the posting fees. Um, none, none of the money goes to the reviewers. What I notice working with that journal is that less people sign on to do reviews because they know their name's going to be on it and they know it's more work. Uh, so it's a little bit harder to recruit them once you know, hey, you're going to have to put your name on this review. So you can't just do this while you're watching the game. You know, you're going to have to actually get some references involved and probably spend a couple hours on this. And most of the time when you're trying to get a couple hours of someone who's very specialized and talented without any pay, that just means it takes longer for them to get back to you. Right. The turnaround time on, on these reviews can be six months. I've got one that's been in review for um, a year. We, we put out 81 uh, Cubensis genomes free for the world, put it public. A couple of reviewers smashed it and have not responded to our, you know, our response to their critiques uh, for a year. And it's just stuck and in like purgatory because uh, these folks we now have found out are off, are off publishing competitive work using our data. Uh, so it's a real uh, a typical like train wreck in peer review, right? And this was something where they put their names public. So everyone can kind of see that they're doing this bullshit. 
Um, so that's that's an that's an area that I think would change if you have pricing signals that incentivize people that you have deadlines and don't sign on to this if you can't hit the deadline and everyone's going to see when you sign on and fail to hit the deadline. Uh, that it will uh, it may also change the uh, you can get a bidding structure. Let's say you do have an address that gets really good at reviewing. People are going to high they're going to bid up the price of that reviewer. Uh, just like Uber has has you know surge capacity and surge pricing, we need that in review. If you have a highly urgent paper that might be related to a pandemic, maybe it should be a 24-hour review, but you better pay to get all those people to review this very, very quickly and transparently. What we had in the pandemic is the PCR assay got peer-reviewed by people, the authors who had testing companies, interested testing companies, and they were the on the editorial board of the journal, and they submitted it and jammed it through that journal in 24 hours, and no one can see the reviews. And then it ends up on the WHO website before it's even through peer review. And next thing you know, we're off probably chasing swarms with false positives, right? Um, so this is really critical, not just for esoteric science stuff. Like the lockdowns are happening because peer review is utterly captured. And, and uh, very few people know this unless you're in the sciences, reading these papers, seeing all the shenanigans that are being played. So we're not going to fix like truth on, on, on Twitter with Elon per se. If it doesn't, if you don't fix it in peer review, all of that's an echo chamber of noise coming out of peer review. You've got to fix it at the peer review step in order for truth to actually get resolved here. I, I, I like this on so many different levels. I, and I love that that you have the conversation on so many different levels. Um, one of the things I was thinking about was uh, just now, you're talking about you know, comments, things not being resolved and, and comments not being resolved. Uh, David Weissman, uh, uh, you know David? I think I just saw him tweet something back at, at Elon this morning. It's the same one. Um, uh, no, I don't think he's on Twitter. Um, okay. Uh, David Weissman, um, he, so you're familiar with the hydroxychloroquine, uh, the three studies from University of Minnesota. Uh, yes, run by David Bullard, Bullard. the Bullard debacle. Yeah, and, um, and there were several people who reevaluated some of those uh, experiments, and one of them was uh, Dr. David Weissman. Um, he he spoke at both the Senator Johnson hearings this this year, and um, so anyway, he, you may or may not recognize him. You may have rings a bell from from the medical freedom community. <clears throat> so he he reevaluated. He he did some cool work with the bullware data. Uh, he he bugged bullware until he got all the data, and then he realized that um, that bullware had not computed time to treatment in any way that was really. Um, that, that was precise in any way. And, and David, the guy, the guy who had Gilead money didn't do things correctly. <laughs> and, and, and David uh, went through, um, it, there was like a, a graph and he literally like took out a ruler and like measured like the time intervals on the graph and said, you know what, if we actually use um, the time to treatment and the shipping delays, you know, the, if we measure the actual amount of time until the medicine got to the person that was taking it, then what you get is uh, is a, a curve that shows dose dependence, and you have a statistically significant effect. And so, you know, he published this as a comment, and it was it was really well done. He spent a significant amount of time on it, and there was a little back and forth between him and the New England Journal of Medicine. And the New England Journal of Medicine just basically threw up his hands and said, "We support David Bulware." Yeah, we we think we think. What he did yeah, was we have advertisement money from somebody. <laughs> That's what that really means. So, the the the, the audience needs to know is the journals. Yeah. So there's 1.8 million papers published per year. That number is a couple of years old. So it's probably like two million or more now. 
uh, and if they're at a thousand three thousand dollars each you can see there's maybe a, you know a six or seven billion dollar just getting money from researchers to publish their papers there's more than that at least probably double that in advertisement money coming into the journals so the journals become beholden to their advertisers and when it comes when it comes to a complicated topic like this David Wiseman has no sponsor that New England Journal of Medicine cares about. Boulware has ties to Gilead and maybe Pfizer cares about this. Maybe And, and, and in the advertisers, this is where you, you brought up a really just crucially important point, which is that the nonprofits can take control, right? They, they try to appear to be, you know, just we're, we're doing things for the world. Yes, we're but, effective altruism. We, we don't care about money here until someone tells us to take down a particular person's paper. <laughs> Uh, and there's certainly there's money going through these systems, but they're, they're, the facade of this is, uh, I think, needs to be called out for what it is. I mean, I remember the Bulwar study in that he put folic acid in as the placebo, which is active <laughs> against SARS-CoV-2. And, and people called them out for that as well. And, of course, didn't change New England Journal of Medicine from backing what was obviously a flawed study. Yeah, at, at the time it was potentially active, right? Like uh, it was I, early, I, right? They didn't and, know what they know now, but but the, there was there was right a uh, a mechanisms paper in Iran that said, you know what, folic acid might work. I think that the preprint on that paper went up the same month that University of uh, Minnesota announced uh, its experiment, and and you know one way or another, you, you they should have stuck with with talk. You know, they should have stuck with something that they absolutely knew would have been inert. Um, but one way or another, you know, uh, there was a mechanisms paper immediately in preprint. And that paper, I believe, uh, sat in preprint purgatory for well over a year before yeah. it was published. And, yeah. and, I, and I keep scratching my head and wondering, is that because uh, it was used as a reactive placebo in these trials, which um, helped make it look like hydroxychloroquine wasn't doing as well as it was? Well, we, we, we have this effect everywhere in, in medicine where um, not just hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, you, you see it in cannabinoids, you see it in any medicine that's basically doesn't have a, a patent still standing, where they go and attack and they attack these things and shut them down. They set up government agencies to study them to shut them down. I mean, there's an entire agency called NIDA, National Institute for Drug Abuse, that is just out to study um, black market drugs and, and show all their harms when a lot of these black market drugs actually are incredibly powerful therapeutics that have enormous n number of human dose hours, right? There's more people that have probably taken cocaine or, uh, or cannabis, uh, or even, or even magic mushrooms than a, a lot of the drugs that they want to bring to market. Um, currently that are under study by the FDA, they have almost no human dose hours on these things, but in order for them to survive the brutality of the FDA, they need to have patents. Uh, to give them 20 year, a 20-year window on this. So the actual regulatory agency that's in place here is making it you know, so cumbersome and painful to get things through, unless you're large like Pfizer and you can, and you can, uh, you can capture them, that people don't approach that unless they have patents. And then that means by default, they're dealing with compounds we know very little about. They have to be novel, right? And all the non-novel ones that have had you know, centuries of use are become enemies of, of the state pharma complex. And they erect all types of institutions and barriers to shut them down. And the, the peer review system is just one is just one part of that. Um, that's kind of the press engine of everything. Uh, and they have their their ropes into this. If you think there's FBI guys at Twitter, I guarantee you there are more powerful people inside these journals that are calling shots um, that are dictating what goes where and uh, you know which, which papers get amplified and which ones get uh, get rejected. Yeah, the uh, the IP war chests are enormous. 
and they they represent an investment in a future in which status quo rules did not change and this is something that people should absorb and think through and understand and this will probably be a lot of the resistance to doing blockchain correctly one of the things that i try to point out to people is ftx has nothing to do with bitcoin failing no in in, in fact you yeah. know bitcoin will come out the other side looking prettier because everything that failed was a combination of well there's some altcoin failure involved stable coin failure involved there is uh third party trust failure involved and people go oh we need to regulate or or maybe we just shouldn't deal with all that garbage right i mean you know bitcoin was just meant to be a peer-to-peer -peer currency and in the short term it is it is an investment asset and there's no need for anyone else to be involved in that process perhaps perhaps there's a job that some exchanges can do you know trading fiat for uh for bitcoin or something like that right. um but but in truth um the the larger part of the third trust third party trust environment uh is entirely unnecessary to bitcoin so similar thing you know uh, we may see um you know and we may have been seeing a lot of attacks on that entire ecosystem by moneyed interests who don't want the world to change because they have so much invested in it whereas um you know this is uh in my mind in a sense this is the market the marxist revolution without the bloodshed uh and without the bad part of the philosophy right like this right. is this is where you actually take away um powers that shouldn't exist uh asymmetric monopoly powers and and you put power back in the hands of people to uh you know to to lead themselves um one one other place i want to go with this is <laughs> there we go <laughs> you're uh, in one of those rooms huh i'm being i'm being too still yeah we have uh, some energy esg thing going on and it's turning our lights off if we don't move <laughs> It's forced exercise is what it is. Yeah, exactly right. Stand up once in a while. You know, you, you brought up a point about, um, like, how do we build this so that it's DeFi or decentralized? Because, um, and that's that's an active debate we're having. So we've got a community on Slack right now that's trying to, to boot something like this up. We, we, did, we did a pilot like this a few years ago on the cannabis genome. Um, that was a bit more complicated. We had a DAO also fund the actual science. So like 50 grand got, got put into to actually run this. But we didn't necessarily, we don't necessarily need to do that going forward. Um, I, I think what we want to build are the rails for people to feel comfortable publishing in a peer-to-peer -peer manner like this, where you use the blockchain system to just recruit and pay reviewers, okay? Like, you know, we can't run this through PayPal because we already seen what PayPal is going to behave like. You know, they're shutting down people who are anti-vax in Canada, right? Uh, or the trucker movement in Canada. So they, they, they and, and I've seen PayPal do that in, in the cannabis field as well. So they're, they're, state, they're a state actor. Um, the, the payment rails are really important so you can get money to anyone in the world here to, to reimburse them for review. We can also use the blockchain for, for hashing and stashing information so that there's an immutable ledger of the record of the review and of the data itself. Blockchains aren't great for holding data. They're great for, for holding hashes of data. So we probably have to have a, a, a separate portion of this service run some type of IPFS type of cloud that stores the raw data or links to, to data in other, in other servers, hopefully mirrored in several places. So it begs the question is, do we, do we build a journal entity, which could be an attack surface, because it's now like a third party exchange, if you will, where this thing is used as, a, as an interface to simplify all this. It's a piece of software that would effectively unite people who want to submit papers 
Perhaps they offer some editorial services because every person who writes a paper could use those. I mean, I've, I've used them in the past. Um, there are people be better at, at dealing with the grammar than I am uh, and, um, and arranging the figures and what have you. And then there's also the reviewers, coordinating with the reviewers. We just have to build that journal, if you will, such that it can, it can build clout and credibility in a way that has the lowest amount of tax surface possible. Uh, and you know, maybe, maybe over time it, it, it doesn't exist. People get so good at this, you don't necessarily need a journal, but I have a feeling getting people transitioning off of the old system into the new one, the, the academics are gonna wanna submit their paper to this process if it doesn't end up published in the journal or something, right? Well, and, uh, journals can still exist. You know, Like I said, uh, the business model can involve uh, a salesperson, right? right? And so if somebody wanted to, uh, somebody could put together a really fantastic journal saying, hey, you know what, um, the, this is how I am going to go about selecting papers. Uh, and and just saying, you know, my job, my job is to be a an excellent curator. Right. So come and take a look at what I think is important in science or changing the world. And it, I mean, right there, you know, journals, journals are recreated and some of them might be automated, but I think uh, a lot of them will still have, you know, a human or humans at the top. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, you, it's, you brought up an interesting point about this isn't just about the reviewers that you, you could take some of the revenues that come in from a person who submits a paper and not just hand them all over to the reviewers. You could fraction some of them off to help either host the data uh, so that it's alive for longer than, than 10 years. Right. Uh, maybe promote it on on and, and, and broadcast it out at various channels. Right. There's there's uh, and, and, you know, if you're if it's done transparently, um, I, I don't think advertisement necessarily on the platform is a sin as long as there's there's you can assure the community that those advertisers aren't calling the shots, uh, that they're not they, they don't have undue influence on what can and can't publish. Um, so that that's uh, to the extent that I think you'd have to ensure that the editors who are in charge of managing those types of um, advertisement services, in effect, don't have any veto power. Um, so that they can't they can't influence the outcome of a journal. If, if it all comes down to just the reviewers and their comments, um, and the community can see those comments, in many ways, the journal doesn't need to make a decision. They can just say, look, the paper came here. This is what the reviewer said. Everything after this point, go to Twitter and argue about it. But uh, it's done. It's done from our perspective. I don't. There shouldn't be uh, an you know a king of this journal that's getting paid by a pharma that can then exert undue influence on steering whether a paper gets through or not. So uh, I like what you brought up, which is that there's there's other possible business um, ideas in here that we haven't fully considered uh, that you might be able to utilize to what, actually get more What's traction. the name of the distributed file sharing system that's been used for uh, more than 20 years? Uh, IPFS? No, no, no. Um, where people were sort of... When people were first like pirating lots of movies and, uh, oh, and BitTorrent, BitTorrent, thank you. Yes. Yeah, um, you might have. Yeah, we we we've really. I feel like we've already largely developed the system. Um, if I am storing uh, a bunch of scientific papers on my hard drive and people are accessing from there, you know, part of the business model uh, can just be you know whoever stores this for access to make sure that it's available on this distributed network. Yeah. Uh, and, and we already know that this works because, you know, billions and billions of songs and movies and other things were exchanged this way. We know that it works. Right. I think there's a there's an effort on Filecoin. A couple other crypto um, companies have been trying to take this and, and, and monetize it with micropayments. 
which is something you brought up that I think is, is an interesting concept. If you can get micropayments involved somehow for the reviewers, the authors uh, that relates to the traffic and the impact factor on this, um, that means authors will soon have cash that they can use to submit to their next, their use to submit to the next paper. Oftentimes the, the, the budget for a paper is never really in a grant somewhere because you, oftentimes you, 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 you do some research and you run into something you didn't expect. You're like, shit, I got to publish this, but I, I didn't like, I didn't budget to for $3,000 to publish it. And then you go and pass the hat around a bunch of people to see if they can help you publish it. And if you want it to be open source, you got to publish even more. You got to, you got to put up even more money for these journals for them to open access it. So um, I like this idea of, of having some type of either, maybe it's a token, maybe it's a, it's a form of currency um, that uh, gives people frequent flyer miles in this program. Um, so that then when they submit at a later date, they not only have a credit score that people understand, the reviewers have a credit score that people understand, but um, there's um, there, there's something involved for, for for papers that actually get a, get a tremendous number of views and are highly cited. And I, I'm going to mention for any audience watching, by the way, uh, this is the first time that I have streamed from my own StreamYard account, and uh, uh, fortunately for me, uh, Liam came in and set up most of that for me. Uh, but because I was down with a migraine for um, the past three days, I did not get in and, and test things out. So I don't know if we're streaming to YouTube, um, but uh, one way or another, um, I can't seem to bring over the comments and copy paste them. And I'll probably have to change some settings later. But Miss Weasel jumps in and says, BitChute is peer-to-peer -peer, peer -peer based, yes? And I actually didn't know that if it is, um, which may explain why a few times when I've wanted to watch something that wasn't available. If, if there is nobody on a network that is sharing a particular file or video, then it may not be available. But uh, you know, clearly, clearly the economics, ultimately, there's nothing that stops any of the economics from working out. There's nothing. Yeah, you know, I think the main thing that, that slows it down is getting uh, the academics side. And I shouldn't even just pin it on the academics, but, but some people are, have been programmed to believe that you can't have money in peer review, otherwise it's bribery. Despite the fact that money is involved in peer review, you're just giving it to a third party who's turning around and charging you for it and taking your copyright, right? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's gross what goes on currently, but um, they're absolutely petrified of having a monetary system involved in doing this peer review. But the way I view it is the people who bring the most value to the peer review right now are the people who aren't getting paid. Uh, and that's not a good system. Uh, you want to have there to be an incentive structure for what actually drives quality and turnaround time. That's the point where you need to apply the monetary units. Uh, that's where there needs to be incentives. That's where there needs to be free market economics. And what they've done is they've ripped that all out of the equation so that the people who are actually responsible for quality are serfs. Uh, and no one wants to participate in this in this free labor. So you end up getting, you know, postdocs and other people who are somewhat new that the PIs kind of slough this work off onto, onto younger investigators and um, no one's getting credit for it. So I, I think we really have to change people's opinion that if we want to fix this, if we want to get out of this, this peer review disaster that we're in. I mean, read John Ianese's work on this, read about the replication crisis. There's a great article at The Guardian. The Guardian will will give you a really ugly view of what has gone on in peer review. It, it actually involves Ghislaine Maxwell's father. Uh, he used to run Maxwell Press, which was a scientific publication entity that Elsevier purchased. Okay, so this is, this is basically a Mossad system that was, uh, they were involved in influencing scientific opinions through journals. And that persisted all the way into Epstein trying to trying to get involved with all the, you know, the, the great scientists that we know today, trying to get dirt on them somehow so that they can influence the IP 
that's getting generated through the system. So we've got to decentralize this, which means yeah. very simply disintermediate the journals, build a crypto system that gets the money to the actual people doing the most valuable part of peer review, which is the actual review. Uh, and and let's try and build something that's transparent. And, uh, and there, there's there's probably a dozen different business models that could like maybe tweak the economic formula to make this a success. I don't I don't propose to have the best one, uh, but you brought you you brought up something I hadn't even thought about, which is yeah, there, there could you could tokenize this. You could be a little, all types of like credit score systems with it. You can even have anonymous reviewers that have addresses that get popularity because they do such good work. Um, that it is uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a name that you can you know one neck to grab. It can be you know like Satoshi Nakamoto if he came in and reviewed or she came in and reviewed a crypto paper. I think people would listen even if they didn't know who the hell they were. The the process kind of creates an interesting board game where your reviewers become part of the team in a sense. Yes, but they're a team insofar as they're sitting down at a board. You know, it's think of it as a chessboard, but it, it, it it's a game. Period. And their goal, their goal isn't necessarily to cooperate with you as in to, you know, they're, they're not for or against you. It's almost as if you're playing, they're, they're playing two different games, right? They're playing two different games that are neutral and therefore it creates cooperative game theory. It's a, that's an important point because I think what tends to happen today in peer review is this is my personal experience is that you either get a reviewer who kind of rubber stamps this and doesn't spend a lot of time on it because they got the editor backed them into a weekend or they didn't have the right time allocation. And so they do a very quick review. The other person that tends to come to the table is your direct competitor in a non-external because they want to throw sand in your gears. And they want to read your paper. They want to, first off, they want to have early access because it is like the, the, the editors give you like the abstract. And so you're like, ooh, that's interesting. I kind of want to know more about that. I'll agree to review it so I can read the whole thing. And if it's for my competitor, yeah, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a peek at that. Now, technically, you're not supposed to do that because, you know, there, there's conflicts there. But oftentimes you'll hear from, from editorial boards being like, well, we sometimes prefer the competitors to review things because they give it the hardest look, you know. But um, the, the, those conflicts don't always get disclosed. And uh, as a result, uh, the process isn't a game theoretic for, for getting the the information sharpened and put into the public domain and verified. It's a game of, uh, of who gets to get their paper out first and how can I, how can I shut the other guys down, taking their information and advancing my own. Or who gets to publish uh, most easily. Um, yes. I, yeah, I'm not going to throw out any names here, but uh, you know, given that my, um, my wife's a biochemist and, and you know, I, I get to take a look at uh, peer review <laughs> back and forths and, uh, you know, th this isn't one of her papers that I was told about, but there was a paper that of somebody that she knows who was publishing and the person who is the 800 pound gorilla in that space was obviously, you know, a, a reviewer. Like a lot of times you can, you can tell someone's by the tone. Uh, you, can just, right. you can tell, you can tell them by, by the tone, but also like their knowledge set and the, and what it is that they're talking about. And right? usually there's a couple papers they demand you cite and that that's always a tell. <laughs> And and there and, and this one person who's the eight hundred pound gorilla was like you know um, you you need to look at this from more angles and run more experiments. But it was like there were like forty different angles from which this paper had looked at what it was studying. And this reviewer is somebody who's known as for for taking one or two, and then gets to push out the earliest paper, the quickest on all the topics in the space. And you know it, that that's really terrible on so many levels because any mistake that they make becomes harder to unwind. This creates 
the atmosphere in which science science progresses uh, one funeral at a time. Yeah, it does. And, <laughs> you know, it, and and that that's one story, but it's probably more common than people realize. Whether or not that's two percent of the space, you know, but there are, there are you know a dozen you know different problems that are each you know two or five percent of the space um, that cause science to be muddier and and everything. But I, I like I love the idea of the reviewer playing. They're playing a different game. They are, you know, one way to view them that that really elevates the reviewer. The reviewer does need to be elevated. Yeah, and their their name ends up on it to the extent that when the work is challenged or looked at, they not only look at the paper, but they look at what the reviewers added to it. And the, yeah, and they should be part of like the. It shouldn't just be like co-authors, like author and co-authors. Yeah, they should be acknowledged. They, they acknowledged should be. They should. Be, yeah, and, and in fact, those things. You know, uh, there may be cases where the reviewer becomes the most important part of the process. And yep. I mean, you know, those might be limited, but it may be very often when reviewers, the contribution that they make might be worthy of like, you authorship. know, second author, third author. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, authorship, you know, it should it should be part of um, the, you know, part of the acknowledgments of who participated in the experiment that would elevate that would elevate the reviewer. Um, now the reviewers elevated. They're getting paid. Uh, there's reputation risk and reputation reward. Right. right. All all of these things, uh, you know, they create more natural incentives. Uh, it, uh, all the perverse incentives go away. All the natural incentives that you would want in a process, the market process, it works. You can just see when you bootstrap, like who 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 is doing what, who gets what. But they're but they but they are playing the game not on behalf of any entity, including the original researcher. Their game is judged as a neutral game, and I love that. Yeah, the, the other the other side effect I think that occurs when you do this is um, the the process of reviewing the game theoretics change. But I also think what happens is uh, it becomes more efficient because there are incentives involved and things happen quicker. Now, the moment you change that, science radically accelerates for for one main reason. Right now, people do not approach putting their their work through a peer reviewed paper process because they know it's a six month to a year process, which means you don't approach that process with three months of data, six months of data. You usually, you usually build up like two years of data before you go and submit it. And then you wait another maybe six months to a year for it to come out. Uh, so that ends up creating batch effects in science where data gets lumped together. The papers get bigger. The authors get bigger. The challenge to review it gets harder. Uh, what you really want is to reverse that. You, you want to have the peer review process be effectively as streamlined and incentivized as, process, as possible, such that you're willing to approach it with six months of data, knowing the process is only a week. Uh, and the moment you do that, you start to see um, the idea bridging happen at much more exponential rate, because you can then start taking science down into more bite-sized pieces and publishing it incrementally and faster. Um, I don't know if did I lose you there. Are you still on the? Uh, I bounced off the screen there, Matt. I think I may have lost you. Ah, oh, got it. He's just taking a break. Um, so that's that's something to consider. Is uh, right now you'll see there is a, one problem we've got in peer review is the author list is is exploding. This is this is. People study this. They look at how many authors per paper there are over time, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yet the number of people reviewing this isn't isn't expanding with it. Uh, so the review is getting 
much more harder to actually perform on these large papers. Uh, and it's creating this negative feedback loop where the, 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 the peer review process is getting more ossified, harder to perform, the size of the papers are getting bigger, uh, and the process is slowing down. But if you put incentives in place um, for this, you'll see that people will start submitting smaller bite-sized pieces of work that can get reviewed faster, and then more people can bridge off of that in at, at, at a more um, timely manner. So, um, yeah, while you're out there, Matt, I was just touching on um, how incentives change the size and scope of what you put through peer review uh, and how that's better for mankind. You, you want to have data coming out and in, in reviewed more incrementally than in large batch size chunks. As is just any processing engineer understands this, uh, just in time science is much better than batch science. Uh, and uh, because if you if you just in time it, that means the public the publicity of what you're doing is getting is getting disseminated to more minds who may, might find flaw, flaws, faults, and, and ways to improve it uh, at a much faster metronome than if you're doing things that have to get through a six month peer review process. That means you're taking two month projects and piling them all into a six month peer review process. That's that slows science. That's the opposite direction we want to go. And there are a lot of mistakes that might get caught uh, very early. Uh, my wife is working on uh, a paper that that has been slowed down. Uh, you know, I wish it had been able to be published early because I, you know, she she might have been the first to, to publish, but it was um, you know, blood samples taken of people um, uh, for their, for you know a few weeks after injection with mRNA vaccines. And, you know, they were looking to detect uh, mRNA in the blood. You know, how long is it there? And uh, and other people have published this since, but there's a, you know, a two-week curve, you know, where um, where uh, you you see the detection in, uh, in blood plasma. Um, but what happened was that there were day zero detections amongst some of the people in the study. Uh-oh, that's contamination. Well, um, what it probably is, uh, is nurses who took the sample right after the injection instead of right before. Yeah, yeah, and that's, and, and, that's the circulatory system. And, and that means that you have to go back and ask them specifically, right? I mean, it's not like hundreds and hundreds of people, right? It's like N equals 17, right? But you still, yeah. you have to you have to go back and figure out, you know, what, what actually took place there. And something like that might get caught instantly in a process where you have, you know, constant, uh, every time you have data, you, you know, you, you put it on the blockchain and somebody can just go review that data and immediately uh, be able to ask the question as opposed to it going weeks later or even months later and having this, you know, difficult chain of communication because of yeah. the batching of steps. Yeah. And then you got to dig, you got to dig data out from a year ago to see oh, what really happened there and, and human memory fades, right? So it's better, it's better to have it more just in time. Yeah, so many problems solved at once. It's it's almost like we could sit here and and we could we could probably come up with a list of a dozen a dozen more problems. And you put together this group now, so I, I'm really excited about this because I felt like when I watched your video, and I'm gonna uh, post this uh, on an article again. Um, I, I did last time, but uh, I'm gonna link back to that article. But you'd given this talk in uh, 2018, right? Yeah, uh, Texas Bitcoin Conference. Yeah. And so, you know, we already have the proof of concept. The proof of concept is over four years old now. Yes. We have the proof of concept. I've got the video with Kevin explaining. Uh, it gives a, uh, you give a, a great talk, very well packaged, um, you know, explaining the process of, of how this happened. So, you know, we're there. It, it's probably going to happen slower than any of us want it to. It, it's, it's going to take some time. I don't know if it's going to take, you know, 
I, I wish I could say five or 10 years. But when I think about this and the amount of time that it's going to take to steer the ship, I'm guessing that it's going to be a while. But it's begun. And that's important. The fact that it has begun. Yeah, I think the pandemic really underscored the need for it. Um, four years or yeah, it was four years ago when I presented that. I don't think the public really appreciated that peer review was as, as broken as it currently is. Uh, the pandemic kind of brought out all the dirty underwear for the thing. But um, I was sensing it because I was in a market that very few people are in. But the, the cannabis market has been ha has had this going on for 40 years or more. Um, so it, it's really evident in that market that there's all types of um, suppression of information and, and social media. And, and, and you get you get mocked if you submit certain papers to certain journals. At least you did back then. Now, now they're all on the on the bandwagon six years later uh, of, of cannabinoids. But uh, early on, I, I've got, I've got, um, I'll have to forward you, your, your audience some of these links. I remember we first sequenced the cannabis genome in 2011. Nature did a hit piece on it talking about how it was the Cheech and Chong project. <laughs> you fast forward six years, it, they did a whole journal with a cover on cannabis being like, this is, you know, the next revolution, right? Uh, so they're, they're, they're clearly in this kind of woke mind virus. Uh, a lot of the editors are. In fact, that's that's one of the reasons I want to encourage people to like go around and look at some of the editors of the preprint servers. Look who's funding them. Uh, like Zuckerberg's are funding BioArchive, and their their editor there. If you would just watch his behavior on Twitter, you'll see he's he believes in censorship. Uh, he's in, he's he's stuck in this kind of woke mind virus thing that's going around that Elon's trying to take down. Who knows if he'll be successful? But they they believe that there is a class of people who understand and should disseminate science and break it down to simpletons for everybody else. And timestamp time solves, I support the current thing. Exactly. Timestamp yes. solves that. It makes it, it at the very least, um, it creates enough continuity of philosophy and expression that it is difficult for people to game it with a projected virtue signal a la effective altruism yeah yeah that that's that's going to permeate through and, and you'll see this time and time again the, the scientists are people we get pulled into these scams people want scientists because they can shower some type of legitimacy and credibility and some form of honesty to the masses so they're always recruiting scientists into their games uh, and we're all susceptible to, to getting, you know, aligned with one of these, you know, nonprofits that is potentially up to uh, eventually evil things. Um, so the, the, there's uh, there, there's a reason why I think we have to we need to have monetary systems involved here to drive incentives because I get nervous when there isn't one. That means I don't know who's influencing it. It's not transparent. I, I want there to be a really clear economic calculus that's going on. And when you start setting up cryptocurrency projects, you can do that. FTX is the wrong example. Obviously, they set up some yield farm, which was a scam from the get go. And many people yelled scam. Um, but uh, when it comes to doing peer review, we're currently living in a scam. Uh, so anything blockchain can bring to the equation that um, that solidifies this uh, would be a godsend. I mean, just the currency alone is going to help move payments so that we can we can recruit reviewers appropriately. But Building an architecture of timestamping these things that's tied into either a BitTorrent or an IPFS type of system. Um, these are engineers that we need. So th this is the challenge we have. There's a group we formed to try and get our head around this. And they're turning the lights out on me now. See, see, there's censorship already happening, Matt. It's happening. <laughs> <laughs> let me hit this, let me hit this button over here. They're trying to censor the sun. Yes, there we go. Um, Terrifyingly, that's already so a huge joke. 
the crypt the folks in the crypto space are talented people and they're worth money so here we are trying to get rid of this this volunteer system we have on peer review and i'm a little nervous that we're trying to do it asking for volunteers to build the code um right there's, there's a philosophical problem there that if we just hope a bunch of people come together and build this it may not happen on the right time scale and maybe we should be considering ways of of uh, infusing incentives and capitalism into this thing so we are um, that chat is ongoing. We don't have a, a resolution to this. I'm nervous about setting up something that has, you know, ICOs and tokens and coins. I've been in the Bitcoin space long enough to see all of those things blow up. Um, I prefer to have this just be on Bitcoin uh, and be something that is uh, time tested. We did do some of these earlier things on yeah. Dash, which is a fork of Bitcoin. I don't know how well it's been doing lately, but uh, a lot of people have accused that coin of, of uh, you know, not having a longevity that's needed to pull this off. Um, I'm not, I'm probably not the best arbiter of that, but, um, I, I do believe in incentive structures, like having a startup mentality where people are incentivized to build this thing, um, is, is, I, I fear is what's needed. Cause I've watched it for four years. The idea be, be, be demonstrated and no one's going to follow suit. I haven't seen any other academic decide to put their neck out and do a, do a paper that way because they're not going to get credit for it in their academic university. They're going to say, oh, you bribed a bunch of reviewers on some crypto page. That's meaningless. We don't accept your work. Um, but if there's a journal behind it, which means there needs to be money behind this journal that can that can house the data and pay for the hosting fees so they don't disappear in a month when it you know ends up like Steam or one of these other blockchains that blows up. Um, there needs to be um, perhaps some you know advisors to the program and then perhaps some engineers that are actually software engineers that are actually programming and building this thing. Uh, you know, on an incentivized timescale um, for this to actually mature. And I don't know, those are some of the ideas we're hashing around right now inside this group. So if there's people out there that are interested in this building this type of system, certainly uh, ring us up and we'll try and include you in these uh, in these discussions. I do think we have the ear of the medical freedom community. They, they all know this needs to get built. Uh, and with your connections and my connections, Jessica's connections, you know, everyone that we know, um, we can get to a, a lot of the large influencers in that field um, to get a, enough scientists to consider this uh, as, as an alternative way to publish. Uh, experiment with it. Give it a try. See how fast it, see how fast it, you can turn things around. Um, but I, I think what will go viral and what will ultimately win in the publication space, the two things that I think researchers care the most about, who are the customers who are funding most of this outside of the advertisers, the researchers, they care most about transparency and turnaround time. And the journals suck at both of those right now, right? They're, they're horrible at turnaround time and there's, they're terrible at transparency. So the two things our customers care about, they screw them on. Uh, so all this thing has to do is be better at transparency and be faster at turnaround time. And I think all you, if you just simply incentivize the reviewers, you, you, you get that part of the market share. Uh, you know, when you start talking about transparency, one of the things that I wonder about is data transparency. And I, I wrote an article last year um, where I was trying to encourage this movement, and it, it's a different step in this. Um, I think that uh, going forward, I think big data is itself going to decentralize. I think these companies that have invested in hoarding so much data yeah. are going to find that uh, to have been money poorly spent. Um, because I think that that there is going to be a decentralization of of data on a larger scale than you know just publication. I, I'm going to give an example though that relates to medicine, medical freedom. Um, you know, I, I suggested in an article last year that we could each keep track of our own data. 
you know, we, we've got these like, you know, Fitbit systems, right? And, uh, you know, I know Zuckerberg is like building this into like virtual reality stuff. I mean, you know, that day has come when, and a lot of it's simple. It's just like, you know, pulse and temperature and things like that. Uh, the kind of things that might be on a polygraph test perhaps. Um, but we could be monitoring those things ourselves. We could have something like a Fitbit that isn't sending data to anyone else that is putting data uh, directly onto uh, blockchain. And then we own that data. And own that data. And, and in order for somebody to use that data, perhaps we have to, uh, you know, we have an interface perhaps on our computer and we say, you know, permission, micropayment selection. You know, if somebody yeah, right. uses my data to collect data for an experiment, then uh, then I get some sort of a micropayment for that, right? And now people are being paid for the data that they are currently giving away for free. And I think this may be what gets people on. It may be yeah, that you, yeah. you get young people who want to start uh, participating in citizen science to, you know, wear this band. And, you know, like you said, we don't have enough, um, it, it, did you say like dose hours or dose days? Right. Yeah. On, on a lot of these new drugs. They're just on, on a lot of new drugs. But but let, let's be broad. Anything that somebody puts in their body or uses. Right. Any chemical, any um, any uh, you know illicit drugs that currently it would be great to have more data on what's going on, whether those drugs should be illegal or not. Right. And, and different cases can be made for all kinds of different uh, you know drugs and substances. Um, uh, you know, personally, I, I look forward to the day when we do not need a legal system for that. And you know how you get there is you have lots of people with lots of data and and it becomes very, very obvious. You should not put X in your body or or X is fine unless, you know, you have one of these I mean, conditions or you know, stuff like that. The future. And I really hope the pandemic highlighted that maybe not to the side of the. The, you know, the, the clan of folks right now that are still stuck in this Fauchio centricity problem, right? But everyone who's kind of seen outside of that can see that, you know, Twitter figured out which drugs were safe during the pandemic faster than any of the peer review systems did. Like the people basically hashing out the details in those papers, the FDA didn't contribute to a single safety signal. They obscured all of them, right? So we knew within maybe the first few months of the vaccine program, something was wrong. Uh, just by people sharing information on these online platforms. It didn't come from peer-reviewed manuscripts. They all bullshitted us uh, into the opposite opinion. It didn't really come from the FDA. It didn't come from Fauci. It didn't come from the CDC, right? All the institutions that we have built to be these arbiters of, of reviewing this all failed uh, and, and arguably exacerbated the problem. Uh, so we, we do have to, I think your point on, on having these decentralized um, not only, you know, data collection and micropayments for, the, for getting access to information, I, I think you, you can imagine, um, you know, business models booting up that would actually go and pay for that type of data to get really fast survey information and inform uh, on, on new devices and new, and new drugs. And uh, you'd be able to know whether a drug is good or bad um, through some type of community system like that. I mean, even if you go back to, let's take a look at the, what was the heart drug, the, the COX-2 inhibitor that, 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 that blew up on them, right? It took them five years to reverse that, killed like 50 or 60,000 people, maybe 100,000 people. Um, are, are we talking about Vioxx? Yes. Yeah, Vioxx, right? 
All right. So, you know, the FDA takes six years and 100,000 deaths for it to figure out what when that signal was obvious to the community before that. Uh, it was obvious to the community. And for anybody who's running data, it would have been obvious in probably an order of magnitude less time than that. Right. We, yes. that, that could have been solved two orders of magnitude earlier. And and people will also, you know, what, what we're going to have is as data comes in and we see how long it takes to produce safety signals. The interesting thing is, the, and I love this, I find this really cool and fascinating to the degree that safety signals matter. What we might see is a slower process of the initial uptake. And then, and then as people get to a point where it, so long as there's no like existential risk, like long-term existential risk, when people get past the point where they don't see, you know, general harms or fertility risks, and then boom, you can just S curve that up. Right. If, if you have a good medicine or we may find out that there is no such medicine, that almost everything becomes personalized. You know, this person might just want to drink an herbal tea when they have pneumonia. This person might want to, you know, take a steroid, you know, different things for different people. Right. Right. Yeah. But I, I think having the tools that are, um, as you're suggesting, that 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 can afford some of these micropayments uh, for data is, is critical. Otherwise, it becomes a harvesting job that. Uh, we've seen where that goes. So you've organized this discussion group now uh, on, on on Discord. Sorry. Oh no, it's uh, right now it's on Slack. So, Sorry, on on Slack. Thank yeah. you. Um, so what is the purpose of this group? Well, we want to get together folks that can help chart out where to go with this. We've we've got enough people passionate about this from a research perspective that want to be involved. They're not necessarily all the right people to code it. And um, so we're, we're trying to involve some folks we, we know from the crypto field that know how to build these types of tools um, from cloud architecture. So we have data storage issues that we can, we can try to address uh, from the web hosting side of things. Um, I, I think we've got a good reach into the scientific community to get them on board with this, at least through the post COVID like medical freedom community, I think would endorse this um, at, at, you know, in, in, in a split second. But the actual uh, brass tacks of building this and how to incentivize that build is kind of what's under discussion right now is do we do we set, set this up as like, um, I mean, the ultimate goal, I think, would have to be completely decentralized DeFi and automated. That's probably a really hard thing to build out of the gate. We may need to build a bridge there, which is, all right, maybe we structure this as a typical C corporation for now until uh, it, it gets off the ground. So it has some jurisdiction and may have some attack surface there, but you can at least get that funded and started and incentivized so that it's building something very quickly um, with the aim of building something that can eventually be uh, more like a DAO, which is more of a distributed autonomous organization that doesn't necessarily have any jurisdictional risk. Um, uh, what I found is when people try to go from zero to DAO, it's very hard to do that. Um, because of uh, it's just a bigger lift, I think, to get completely jurisdiction free out of the gate and not end up in some kind of shitcoin casino like we've seen a lot of projects end up when they try and do that too quickly. Right. Yeah. The regulatory maze is not easy. And so when we see thousands of shitcoins, um, you know, you end up being in Panama before, you know, it. you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's one of these things where, OK, is that really how we want to start this? And are you going to get a lot of these folks? the academics and, and a lot of people in the scientific community to like be submitting their journal to some like, you know, thing that's run out of Bavaria or, you know, I don't know, they, they'll, in Albania, right? It's going to be one of these, that, that's a harder thing to sell. So we may have to build this in the image of what people are used to, which is like a C corporation with tra traditional stock options and that incentivize people. 
um, but build code that it can eventually fly and be free of any jurisdiction um, that's needed. Uh, and maybe that's just the incentive. Maybe we have to stick with kind of the, the state-based rules to get the incentive off the ground. Um, and that ends up making it look more credible in the eyes of, of the scientific community. But I, I do worry that if we try and build this in completely DeFi setting where, uh, you know, we have to have, we got to tokenize everything. And, and next thing you know, we're, we're, we're violating how we test. We got to move out of the country. There's scientific advisors don't want to be involved because now they're worried it, it could in fact be another SBF move. Um, there's, there's, there's risk, I think in both ways, uh, you know, going either way, but I, I personally built all the companies that I've built in my, in my history, the old way, uh, which is through C corporations and securities law, because I understand that. And, and that's kind of the easier, easiest way to raise money these days. Um, I'm very intrigued on how to do this in the decentralized manner, but I, I've watched a lot of people blow up in that move. Yeah, you know, there's yeah. an interesting paradox here, which is you may want to establish a corporation. It may not ever be profitable, and yet yeah. it may still do the thing that you want to do. It, it may be good to sort of take a, a, um, a lighthearted approach, which is, um, you know what, uh, this, we acknowledge that this is sandboxing to begin with. And to the extent that we wind up with, with good papers and good data, it will probably be hoovered up into some newer system in the future because we know that we are sandboxing and yet the sandboxing may need to occur in order for that future to exist in order for the the complete system like and and you said this and i i totally agree what i would like to see is for this to happen on on the bitcoin network but i think that it is also the case that bitcoin has to go through this maturity process you know currently there are all the hodlers and this this is it's it's part of the same uh, paradox right um we do want this to be a peer-to-peer -peer cash system but you know until we reach the point at which bitcoin's value is matured nobody should want to get rid of their bitcoin that they have right except maybe yeah. in bits in order to you know teach people and and you know be part of the system but um yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe lightning's a better second layer for moving the money around if people are worried about you know converting in and out of bitcoin but you know we, so we we do run a, a currently right now we we have a genetic registry that that hashes every genome we sequence onto the bitcoin network in fact the the, the users who buy the service from us can hash them onto four different chains but they they only default to the other chains when bitcoin's really expensive from a transaction fee standpoint which we did we did run through that at era at one point where it's like 20 bucks a transaction or something back a few years ago when there's the whole block war crisis but what that system does is when you sequence a genome with us, uh, we make a hash of that genome and, and put it into a transaction. And there's some there's some IP reasons why people want to do that to prove that they have a born on date for a particular strain. Um, there's a lot of patenting of strains going on right now, and people don't want their strains getting submarine by patent. So they want to have like proof of existence. They can't go to a bank, a federal bank to notarize their cannabis plant. So what do you do? You sequence it, <laughs> notarize it on Bitcoin. Um, and so that system we've kind of learned in this process of, okay, there are times when the Bitcoin network is going through some growing pains and it is not the right place to do that type of hash and stash uh, because it's just too expensive per transaction. So maybe we need to go to a second layer system. But that's where we put we pulled in Dash because they were cheaper and faster. And we pulled in Ethereum and, and, and I think Bitcoin Cash was the first was the fourth one. But um, I don't know how well Bitcoin Cash is doing these days. It's probably dead. But uh, the, we're talking about cannabis and hash and stash. Yeah, we're, right. <laughs> we're, we're, we're on a list. If we weren't already, we're on a list somewhere now. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> so so the, we're, we're moving to another level of organization. I'm going to throw in sort of, a, you know, one last sort of 
there's so many just tangential pieces to the pandemic. Uh, the kids have been isolated and intellectually starved. And my hope is that there's a silver lining to, to where a bunch of these kids who have been in the school system wake up and start to do things themselves. Because I think ultimately... We should be helicoptering like Murray Rothbard to all these kids who can't go to school right now. <laughs> yeah, really, right? Um, so one, I worry, but I also think that there's a great hope, you know, a silver lining. Those who escape the madness, those who escape the system, um, who decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things myself. Those are going to be the people who grow up playing with blockchain stuff, whether their first blockchain is NFT, you know, video game items. And I do think yeah. that's one of the places where NFT can succeed yeah. is, you know, video game items and Art. baseball cards. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Collect like collectible information or something, you know, um, not not like, a, you know, giant multimillion dollar uh, Pepe faces. <laughs> eight bit, eight bit uh, art. But the kids are going to grow up understanding this because it is less complicated than people think. It feels more complicated because people are mistaught about how things could work economically the first time around. And this creates the, the matrix and the illusion that's part of it. So, you know, the, the kids will do this, the kids will invent it, but we, we do need to give them a foundation. Um, what's, if we're wrapping things up, what is, um, you know, currently, where is the state of all this? And, you know, how many people do you talk to who appreciate what you're doing and who are sort of game to participate in what might be the next generation of, of science? Uh, so it's it's a good question. Four years ago, when I gave that talk, I ended it with, it's you know, we need to have a separation of science and state. And I think everyone walked away thinking I'm a lunatic. Um, and uh, now I think people see that presentation are like, holy shit, that was actually quite prescient that we, we need to build something that does this. Otherwise, we were always going to be under the manipulation of the state because they just use scientists as their Fauci's that come out and march them around in white lab coats and, and, and cast spells upon the population. And we saw that spell cast very effectively in, in 2000, uh, 2020. So um, there's now a lot of people who understand the need. I don't know that we all agree necessarily on what, on what the path forward is, other than we do need to disintermediate the journals because they currently are taking in revenue from pharma and the incumbent players can then call the shots on what papers get through and don't get through. And we've seen, at least the community that we're in, we've seen enough papers that are very qualified papers get either rejected or retracted post getting accepted um, that are based on negative outcomes of the vaccine. So literally, we, we could have killed 100,000 people, maybe more, because the peer review system is in some kind of woke cult right now. Uh, so there's there's a, an obvious need to build this. Now, how to build it and who's going to help us build it and how to get there is is what we're trying to hash out on this. Uh, there, there's the hash term again uh, on this uh, uh, on the Slack channel. So I would encourage if you're involved in um, blockchains and you want to build some type of truth beacon, like a peer view system that actually uh, resolves with uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, uh, you know, contact us, get involved. I, I do think we've got the scientific momentum and the curiosity of the scientists to do this, but they're not the people who know how to build it. They're the people who know how to maybe run it, be an arbiter of it, be on an editorial board for it, 
Um, they're, they're great networkers to pull in other community members to encourage them to use this system. Uh, so in many ways, I think one of the biggest risks of any startup is getting market adoption. I think this system is going to have that out of the gate because there's enough people in, our, in the community that agree this is the problem that needs to be solved, that they'll spread it'll spread like wildfire far near. What we haven't convinced are the, are the people in maybe in the blockchain and crypto community to like, let's build this thing. Uh, we need it. Uh, and your, your, your uh, you know, crypto money is, is one thing. It's very important. But as long as we have uh, this peer review system uh, susceptible to being manipulated into and cast spells across the entire global population, your money is going to be volatile. Uh, I don't care how hard you hodl, it's going to be subject to all of these other forces at play. So we need to build this truth engine uh, to keep your money non-volatile. So I'd encourage people in the, in the Bitcoin space to put some energy into this because only if we have truth in media are we actually going to have uh, you know, a volatile uh, economy, a non-volatile economy. Yeah, that's a call to arms, people. Uh, you know, I, I hope that uh, this gets passed around and, and maybe some of the Bitcoin billionaires will hear this conversation. Um, yeah, it, it is it is time to start thinking in terms of all the problems that Bitcoin can solve. And, um, you yeah, know, th this one is huge. You know, if Bitcoin solves the financial system, it may solve the scientific system with it. It may solve healthcare with it. It may solve all these things that could bring us from a dark age into a new age of enlightenment. And people keep wondering where technology is going to go, where science is going to go. I don't think it's going to be like the Star Trek future any, anytime soon. I think that 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 it's going to be, you know, we, we, we've created all these wonderful things and now perhaps we can shed the anxiety that is attached to them so that we can enjoy them more and move forward. And perhaps that's that's part of the, the next year of science is taking what we have and, and uh, you know, sloughing off the, the yoke of an invisible slavery. Um, well, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Do you have uh, anything like a web? I, if, if you don't have a website with a Bitcoin address, I'm going to encourage that because it oh. may be, I mean, really, really and truly, you know, like, it, you know, you're wondering how to run a corporation. Who knows when somebody who's made a hundred million dollars off of Bitcoin is going to drop a million dollars on a project like this that could be world changing. And well, you know, we, can, we can throw up an address for this particular site um, fairly quickly. I just want to um, typically when I do those types of fundraisers, I like to have it um, be on a multi-sig thing where there's more than just me. Um, because I, I feel like that's just the, whenever you take funds in this, it's too easy to take money and run. Um, so I've done this once before and I set it up on a multi-sig. It's a little easier to do than it was back when I did that before. So uh, maybe I got to go to Hoddle Hoddle or one of those places to set up some type of multi-sig. But that would mean that there's at least one other party involved in, in um, spending that money other than just me and I can't run and hide with it. But uh, that's probably a good idea for the group to, to get their head around us. We'll throw up a, a donation page if people want to contribute um, anything, anything they can toward this project. We'll promise to um, spend it as transparently as possible, building something that can hopefully uh, move this idea forward. Okay, last questions. Uh, uh, will, if people you know, put these funds in an account to be used for a project like this, um, can the funds be barred upon and will you commingle funds? <laughs> well, we actually have a great 20% yield program. <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed, huh? Guaranteed yield, no risk, zero risk. And, um, and, and we do well capitalism. So we're going to invest in uh, these spotted owls need to be saved. Yeah, we're going to save spotted owls and 
Uh, we're going to get children's books out to everybody that talk about the wonders of voting. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> great. You heard it right here, everybody. Well, Kevin, yeah. thanks so much for joining us. And uh, I, I'm going to send this to uh, a couple of friends who are who are in in the circles of people who believe that um, you know Bitcoin you know has these potentials. But uh, I mean. This is something so broad and perhaps a lot of people who want medical freedom will begin to view Bitcoin this way because it is. This is the engine for smoothing out the economic incentives and taking control away from you know, very, very tight points of locus. Thanks so much for joining us. And yes, let, let me know if you ever want to, you know, if you make progress with this, you want to come back and talk about it anytime, just let me know. Oh, great. Awesome. Thank you. And I, I appreciate the ideas on all the other uh, micropayment options we should be thinking about because that's, uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't considered that. And that's, uh, that's definitely, has the wheels turning a little bit. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, everybody. Okay. All right. Cheers.